Welcome to Heidi's Lemonade Stand, where we celebrate the triumphs of people who have overcome their own life's challenges and made our world better. People who have taken life's lemons and made lemonade. I am Heidi, your host. Thank you for joining me. Marcy, welcome to the Lemonade Stand. I'm excited to get to know you a little bit better, so tell me a few things about yourself. I was born and raised in Springville, Utah, so just south of Provo. I have just one sibling, my younger sister, so a really small family. I come from a family with divorced parents. Um, I went to BYU. I graduated from BYU, and when I was there, I was on one of their traveling dance teams, and so I got to go to Europe and, you know, see the world with them. I also served an LDS mission in Canada, and so I was was at one point fluent in French, but I have four kids, two of whom are out of the house, two who are still here, you know. That's great. Yay. Yeah, yeah, that's great. That's great stuff. Thank you for sharing that with me. That's great. So take me back. Tell me your story. What happened to you years ago? Where did this all begin? I will just start by saying that uh, four years ago, I got remarried for the second time. And I'm going to start here and then I'll go back. And my, my current husband was an active addict. And he hadn't been sober for 15 years. But I didn't know that because I was such a disaster myself. And so it's his recovery that took me to and through my own recovery and my own recovery group that I've been in for over three years and has helped me be able to come to understand myself better. And on this journey that we're all on, I think throughout our lives here to figure out who, or I don't even like to say to figure out. So scratch that to remember who we are, remember who that person is, that really strong, resilient, beautiful spirit inside of us that we all have with that beautiful energy. I learned a lot of things or realized a lot of things about me that had happened with my mom and my sister growing up and then with, with my first marriage. So, um, okay. Now going back from that. Yeah. So I was raised by my mother, mostly my parents got divorced when I was 10. My little sister was like three and a half. I understand now that my mom did the best she could with the tools she had, but I really didn't like her for a long time. And I felt a lot of shame about that. You know, who says, oh, I don't like my mom. I remember feeling really like feelings of longing, sometimes jealousy or envy when I had friends who would say, oh, I'm going shopping with my mom. She's my best friend. And I didn't feel that way. And so I thought, well, what's wrong with me? Like, why don't I feel that way? Or why can't I have that? What, you know, why don't I get to have that? I was raised in a really codependent environment. So codependent that when I was in high school, when my mom would drop me off for school because I didn't have my own car, if she hadn't told me that day that I, I looked nice or I looked pretty, then my day was ruined amazing. Right now I think about that and I'm like, Oh my gosh, that's, that's terrible. But that is how wound up in codependency I was at the time, not realizing of course what that was. And then 
you know, growing up, especially here in Utah and especially in the LDS culture, which I might add is very, very separate from the actual doctrine and, you know, the scriptures and I, that took me a long time to figure out as well. And something that I had to learn the hard way is that expectations are premeditated resentments. We feel resentful when things don't happen the way that we hope they're going to happen, that the fairy tale doesn't come true because, you know, when you're younger and you think of getting married, you plan, you know, especially if you're a girl, most times you're writing down your kids' names for years and you're planning, you know, the colors that you'd want to have and what you think your dress might want to look like. And it's a fairy tale. Little girls grow up for the most part loving princesses and that's what we're exposed to. And so princesses are surrounded by the fairy tale. So that's what I grew up with. And so I met this really nice young man at BYU and you know, he was adorable and we ended up getting married and he wanted to be a physician. And so when our first was only a few months old and he's now 23, we moved across the country to Missouri and we were there for 10 years in medical school and residency. And during that time, I realized that I was, because of the codependency that I grew up in and my unrealistic expectations, I was constantly future tripping and waiting for the future. I had a really hard time knowing how to just enjoy and live in the moment. And I was thinking, okay, when we get to this place, it'll be better. When we get to this place, it will be better. We, you know, finally finished you know, we were moving, we moved back out to Utah. He got a job in Tooele County and we built this big, beautiful house on an acre that overlooked, I mean, the Great Salt Lake, you could see clear to Antelope Island and, you know, it had all these rooms in it and room for our kids and their friends and like a theater room. And we had all the toys, right? So we had, uh, we owned a, a houseboat with a group of people down in Lake Powell and we had a wakeboarding boat and we had side-by-sides and a Jeep and, you know, all the things, but there was a, there were things that were missing. A lot of things that were missing. And I remember getting to this place in my life. And then in 2011, my mom passed away right after I turned 40. She had endometrial cancer for four years. So she passed away. I fell into this really deep depression and so in reading your story and listening to your, listening to your story and knowing that you also had uh, suicidal ideation, I had that as well. And I, I really don't think that we realize how often that happens, but, you know, things, my husband was having a difficult time at his job. Some things that were happening to him that threatened his license that were untrue And so he was stressed out. I was in this deep depression for my mom. And what I've come to realize now is that when two unhealthy people, not knowing that you're unhealthy, right? You're like, you think that, I mean, you have the behaviors that you've been taught growing up in your family of origin. So that's what you know. And when you have two people in a relationship with behaviors that, and communication patterns that are unhealthy and push comes to shove and things, you know, you hit heads it's terrible. And you get in this ugly cycle of 
pointing out each other's flaws and feeling upset. And I mean, it's, it's horrible. And so what ended up happening was that my first husband uh, had a woman who came to work at his office. She was divorced and um, the two of them formed a relationship. And by that fall, uh, in October, I'd come home from fall break with my kids and my sister's kids. We took the kids to uh, Disneyland and my husband just didn't want to go, right? So it was, oh, it's okay, you go and take the kids. And I came home and things were just really, really like weird. Like I, I felt it. Communication is 90% nonverbal and I felt the nonverbal communication. I'm like something's really wrong. I was in denial too. I'm sure I knew what it was. And I just didn't, I didn't want to know that. I asked him if I could use his laptop. I didn't have one at the time. And, and he went out for a little bit with a friend and I just happened to find all these text messages between him and this woman that he worked with. That's when I really knew, <laughs> you know, so over the next week I found out that she was like the fifth or sixth person over a couple of years that this had happened with he flat out told me that he did not love me anymore and he didn't want to work to fix it being the codependent person that I was I was so needy and so insecure and so lacking in my knowledge of who I really was that I was terrified. I had been at home raising our kids for like 20 years and hadn't worked outside our home. So I didn't have a 401k, any sort of retirement. I didn't have social security and I was panicking. I'm like, oh my gosh, he's going to divorce me. Like I'm totally reliant on him to pay, you know, for us to live. And I felt so exposed and so vulnerable and just, I remember looking out my bedroom window and, and just thinking, is this what the rest of my life is going to be like? Is this as good as it gets for me? Maybe it just gets better for other people. And I'm one of those people that it just doesn't get better for. I had been in a place before where I didn't want to be around anymore. I have never wanted to hurt myself and thought of a way specifically, you know, to take pills or to use a firearm. Like I've, I'd never thought of that, but I just didn't want to exist anymore. I just wish that all these little pieces of me would just kind of just digitize, just go out and, and just disappear because it was so heavy and so painful. And I remember laying on my closet floor and to just get some space by myself. And all I could do was just cry and cry and cry. And the only prayer I could utter was, please help me, please help me, please help me. And so we had to sell our house and move, you know, just tried to move forward the best that I could and deal with how it was affecting my children. 
with the tools I had at that time, which weren't good. They weren't sharp tools. I didn't have plentiful tools. It was, it was a mess. And so then <laughs> the next event happens where I meet my husband that I'm married to now. In fact, tomorrow's our fourth anniversary. And I meet this person on match.com. And let me just say that after not being in the dating scene for years and years, and then all of a sudden, every, most everything is online. It's terrifying to go back into the dating scene. It's not fun. <laughs> I was so broken and so needy before my husband and I had gotten divorced. Um, he had not touched me intimately or with affection for like a year. I was so broken and in need of attention and affection. And my husband now was the same way he'd been married for like 18 years. And so we found each other on match and got married pretty quick. <laughs> and soon after that, I realized, okay, there's a problem here. He, I knew that he drank alcohol, but that wasn't the be all end all for me coming from a relationship that was with two people who were born and raised in the LDS church, served missions, got married in an LDS temple. And then that turned into like a crap show. It was horrible. I'd have people ask me, well, why, why didn't you marry somebody who was an active member again? Or why didn't you, da, da, da. you know, and I said, I tried that once it didn't work. So, and I, that was, there was, there were a lot of triggers there for me that I hadn't dealt with or healed. And I was like, I am not doing that. So the fact that this amazing man that I married that loved me would, would socially drink. I, that didn't bother me at all. That's, I don't believe that God loves you or doesn't love you because you have a beer. So I found out though, realized that during that first year that it was a lot more than that that he had an addiction. And I was, again, terrified. I'm like, what have I gotten myself into? Again, feeling all these, all this shame. And, you know, you're just like, you're a screw up. You can't do anything right. And so it was the spring of 2018 that he went to recovery for the first time to a residential treatment center. He was there for 60 days and then did some, some treatment after that in their program an out, outpatient program and came home. And during that time I had started going to their, their family group and the purpose of family group. Um, a lot of people go and at the get go spouses or family members and think, Oh, I'm here to learn how to help them with their addiction. But that's not the point. The point is for you to help yourself. And then a lot of people get confused and say, well, I'm not the one with the addiction. I don't need help. And it, you can get a little bit offended, you know, like that hurts a little bit. But in reality, another lesson I had to learn the hard way is that like attracts like. It really honestly does. Energy attracts energy, like attracts like. And so if you are at a point in your life where you are hurt, lacking and in pain, whether it's from an actual substance addiction or some sort of trauma that you've, you've suffered, 
that's unhealed, you are going to attract a person that is struggling in that in a similar way. And that's just the way it is. You go for you, not for them. So that you can both kind of heal and rise together. That's the point. So my husband came home the first time, the weekend of our first anniversary and went on a bender for the weekend. I had not healed enough to understand that again, going into treatment for 60 days or 70 days, wasn't a be all end all. And that was not a fairy tale that recovery is eternal. It's a day by day by day, a daily process that we take by the fall of 2018 Yours truly was also drinking to numb myself. I had done it a little bit in the past when I was married to my first husband because I was in so much pain. And so there I was kind of like, I had points where I was so exhausted mentally and emotionally and spiritually that I just had kind of given up. You know, I wasn't sure what to do. And so I will just sit here and numb myself so I don't have to think and stress out about what to do. And so there I was drinking myself. My husband went back to treatment the second time, the day after Thanksgiving, 2018. Things just continued to progress to a point where they were like, it wasn't good. I had to call the police because he was intoxicated and, um, you know, kind of made a scene in the neighborhood at like midnight and something had to happen. And so he went back to treatment Uh, ended up being in treatment. By the time he came home full-time, it was the next August. So he was gone nine months. But what happened to me was really, really profound that second time. So within two weeks of him being, a week or two weeks of him being in treatment the second time, I found myself, I was teaching school. I was an instructor for a special education program at a charter school And I had my two girls here. There was one day when I realized that I was trying to work out in my brain how to get to the liquor store without my daughters or anyone else knowing. And I stopped and said, this is a problem. And realized that I was addicted to alcohol. Now, my fallout from that wasn't nearly as bad as a lot of other people's. And so there have been times like in the early days where I was almost felt like I wasn't, this will sound really weird, that I wasn't worthy to call myself an addict because like I had just kind of, you know, seemingly compared to other people's experiences, it seemed like I just kind of dabbled. But um, I was addicted to alcohol and started to address that and also came to truly believe that we all have addictions. Now I said that once in church at the pulpit and I think that people were looking at each other like, Oh, I got to go get a drink or use the bathroom. Like they were so uncomfortable because you say addiction and people just aren't sure they get really, it puts them out of their comfort zone really quick, but it's true. So people look at addiction as being traditional addiction. You know, it started off with like gambling and there's porn addiction, but people think alcohol and drugs, you know, And when you say the word addict, no matter if you mean to or not, there's a certain picture that forms in your mind of what that person looks like. But I don't think it usually looks like me. 
I didn't look like me in my head. And I realized that, that we all have pain and pain is something that travels through generations. And that's something that people don't know a lot about. So pain that has happened to our ancestors down our generational lines is actually passed to us and gets in our DNA. And we've got family upon family who teach their children certain reactions or behaviors. And those children turn around and do the same things when they meet somebody to marry and have children and keep passing those on. And so you've got all these unhealthy, you know, behaviors and responses and reactions and ways to communicate that aren't healthy, but people don't know they're just doing the best that they can to survive and to cope. And well, this is the way that we've always, you know, addressed this situation. And so you have all this pain that builds up. And so there's a lot of truth in the, which, in the fact, which is a natural fact that 80% of the baggage we carry isn't even ours. It's generational. Only 20% is ours. It's all been passed down to us. You know, everybody has pain, you know, maybe some, not everybody had a family that was so codepe as codependent and in denial as mine, or maybe your family didn't have somebody with a traditional addiction but we all try to find ways to numb in unhealthy ways. We eat food, we scroll on social media, we, um, or talk on the phone for hours or text. We spend money, like go on a shopping spree on Amazon, all sorts of things to numb our behaviors or our, that feeling of being, oh, I don't, I don't like that. I don't want to feel uncomfortable. It's true. We all have things that we need to address. And so for the past three plus years, I've been in this group and I go to therapy and I do energy work and I work on my, my 12 steps. And there's always more that can be done for sure. Always more that can be done. So I'm going to be 50 in a few weeks. And it's the first time in my life that I feel this grounded. It doesn't mean that there isn't stuff going on in my life that's you know causing me stress or that's life but for the first time I feel grounded so my husband and I never should have happened if you look at it statistically two people completely broken in active addiction um, meeting on match.com like it should have been a disaster and for a lot of people it is a disaster but, you know, working a program and working on bettering yourself and actually realizing that, you know, we all have shame. We do. We all have denial. We all have, especially around here, perfectionism, you know, which is so, so terribly harmful. Perfectionism. We all, you know, are so codependent and future trip. Like we make up our kids' lives for them. You know, what, what they're going to be and what they're going to do. That's BS. I, you know, I've had so many come to Jesus moments. And one of them was when as a mother and as a mother in the LDS church, you know, raising children that understand who God is and who Jesus Christ is, is, you know, a big deal. We lose sight of the forest for the trees and take that like as if it's our own like you know little source of pat yourself on the back pride and it's not at all because those children are ours you know we they're on loan to us 
And so I was feeling a lot of mom shame and guilt because my two oldest children, especially after the divorce, had a really hard time and didn't want to go to church anymore. In fact, my oldest son, who is 23, doesn't even sure, isn't even sure right now if he knows actually who God is, you know, or if God is like a person to him. And I really had to sit back and realize that that doesn't matter. You know, I have kids who are beautiful, have a lot of integrity, that are smart, that are happy, that are, you know, well-adjusted. Um, and that's important to me. That's the most important part. You know, so if you see my son today, he's got hair down to here. He's got about 12 or 13 tattoos. You know, he doesn't really believe in God. He likes to drink with his, his uh, friends that he lives with but he just graduated from college and he has a really good job and he's one of the best humans I've ever met. You know, my daughter who struggled is in nursing school in Colorado and she's a beautiful human because I stepped back and I just let them be. I remember the day that I was in a weekend workshop for my recovery group and some really hard questions were asked and we were challenged on a lot of our beliefs. And I remember when two things that like were really so many things, but these two things that were important to me, uh, the first one was the realization that what my first husband did, he did not do to me, had nothing to do with me. The betrayal, like, like it was all at first, like, this is all me and happening to me didn't have anything to do with me. He was in so much pain himself and trying to find his own outlet and his own way to numb. He didn't do it to me. And another thing that I realized was that my husband now, that his recovery was none of my business, that you stay in your own lane. And the only thing you can control is yourself. And what he does in his own recovery and in his program is up to him because there was a point where when I was, you know, encouraged by other members of his family to check his email, check his text message messages, you know, put a GPS on his car, all these things that complicate it and break down a relationship. So now I am here almost 50. It took me until I was about 48 to realize what I felt God wanted me to do. God is my higher power. Everybody has their own higher power, no ma matter what or who that is. My higher powers are Jesus Christ and God. And it took me until about 48 to feel like I knew exactly what I wanted to do. I had a degree, I have a degree from BYU and something totally unrelated, but I felt very strongly that I needed to go into the world and continue in the community of addiction recovery and social work. So right now I am getting ready to start a program at the University of Utah in August in their ACEDC program and get my certification in advanced substance use disorder. So I'll be an addiction specialist. And then this in a few months also apply to the, their master's program, their master's of social work program 
to get my LCSW. I feel so, so strongly with the suffering I see in families, whether there is active addiction, like typical addiction or not, that we focus on all the little branches of the tree because we want to help so bad, whether it's like suicide or cyberbullying or, you know, or people that are in full-blown addiction and going to recovery. But the root of the tree is working in the family system. And so I really, um, among, you know, working with addiction and recovery as well, I, somebody, and I'm going to be one of those people, we need more people to focus on families and the family system and opening communication and healthy communication and teaching that it's okay to show emotion. Too many of us have shoved so many things under the rug that I'm surprised we can even step over it. Or the elephant in the room is so big, I'm surprised it doesn't take up the whole room. We shove so many things down in our hearts and create such a huge, deep, dense heart wall to protect ourselves. And we think it's protecting us, but it's not. My goal, my mission is to help families understand that it's okay to admit you have emotion. It's okay to talk about emotions. It's okay to trust emotions, that that's okay, that we don't shame. You know, we have awareness. We don't deny that perfectionism is not a thing. We won't ever be perfect. You know, I just, I feel so strongly that we will see if that can begin to happen somehow, that we won't have so many families that reach the point of having children who, or adults, you know, spouses who can't handle it. And so they, you know, bust out into full-blown addiction. You know, this whole idea that there's the person in the family system who is an addict is a black sheep. That's got to stop. That's not true. They're actually the most sensitive and the freaking heroes because what they do finally is draw attention to the fact that something's going on here because addiction is the last thing that happens in a family that's full of codependency and denial and shame and all that chaos is that the person that acts out in addiction has for so long thought, why do we not talk about our feelings? Why do we not talk about all this stuff? Why don't we apologize to each other and look each other in the eyes and talk about our emotions and our feelings? Why do we just pretend like it doesn't happen and move on? And they get to the point where they can't handle that anymore, being the only one going, what is going on here that no one's talking about? And decide to just numb the pain because it's too much. That's what I'm doing. I have a really good friend of mine from my recovery group that's also going to graduate school to get her degree. You know, we've started slow steps of beginning our own podcast to talk about addiction and recovery and our own stories, as well as just different topics within addiction and recovery with hopes to shed light on what that really is and how it really does affect all of us and that that's okay. <laughs> Let's normalize it a little bit. Not that we're normalizing, you know, people using heroin or, you know, going on an, a, an alcohol binge, but just talking about it and knowing that it's okay and that what is underneath it happens to pretty much everyone at some level or another and it's okay to talk about it because if you don't 
it doesn't go away. So that's my story. <laughs> that's what I'm doing. <laughs> wow. Wow. That's amazing. What an amazing, inspiring example you are to go through all that and find the good that has come from it and to break it open, talk to people and be willing to share what you've been through. Thank you for that. That's amazing. You're so welcome. That's amazing. You're such a light to people because I love how you brought up addictions are like for everybody because that is so true. And people that were like, oh, well, I'm not shooting up, you know, or I'm not drinking all weekend or something. So I don't have an addiction, but you do. If it's something that's keeping you, you numbed out from feeling, mm -hmm. it's your little thing you go do, then that's mm -hmm. an addiction and it needs to be addressed. For the last couple of years, especially like things have changed for me. You know, I, I know how to set boundaries now. I, yes. I don't enable other people. And so some of my family members, I think have been like, sometimes, wait, why isn't she, yeah. why isn't she patting my back? I mean, I'm yeah. still I have a lot of compassion and love, but I'm also going to be honest Yes. You know, with you. And, you know, so now I find myself in this house that is much smaller than the house I had before living a much different life, but feeling more fulfilled than I did before. Yeah. You know, I am married to an amazing man who is such a blessing to me. I've got healthy, beautiful children who are for the most part, you know, well-adjusted as much as you can be as a teenager. And I have a wonderful, beautiful friendship with my first husband that brings me to tears. He, I have a deep love for him and he is one of my best friends. And that has benefited my life and my children's lives you didn't have that with your parents but that didn't come right away there was too much you had to deal with there was first. so much to deal with really when that moment happened where I realized that what my first husband did with the infidelity he didn't do to me and then other things that happened between us exchanges verbal exchanges that that's really just a result of his pain. It was much easier to not get defensive, right? So that's our, our protection is to like get defensive and like, well, you, you know, back at them. And, you know, that doesn't happen anymore. And, you know, he'd do anything for me and I do anything for him. And we're connected by these beautiful children that we share. And we really, I mean, we spent just over two decades with each other. That's a long time. We, we went through a lot. We saw a lot. We did a lot. It's really important that that turn that you take where you're able to look inside yourself instead of get defensive. You know, there's a proverb that says when salt is thrown, unless there is a wound, it will not hurt. And when people say something to us or do something to us that is unkind, like whether it's someone we know or a stranger, you know, somebody with road rage, whatever it is, our initial reaction as humans, usually, unless we're super like uber aware of and in a process of processing and healing is to be like, what? That is, you know, that is so rude. And then to point the finger back. And, or you started it or whatever it is, but really the most important thing is to stop 
and look inside and say, wait a second, why is that triggering me so bad? And that doesn't mean that what that person said or did isn't unkind and you're excusing them. That's not what I'm saying. Because some people say things or do things that like they're out of line. It's there. We're not justifying, but if you're so triggered by it, that it makes you just like angry or upset or, you know, just really, well, just really upset. Then you need to look inside and say, why does this trigger me so bad? Like what has happened to me in the past? What experience have I had that's causing me to feel this way? And if you write it out and people say, oh, I want to write it out, but writing reveals, relieves pain and reveals truth. So if you write it out or at least talk it out with somebody who's acceptable to talk to, um, can be a good listening board and to validate, then you realize like it'll come up and you'll be like, oh, that's why that bothers me so much. Then you're able to process and heal that one little bit at a time. So I challenge people, let yourself get uncomfortable because it doesn't feel good in the beginning, but the more you're able to sit in those uncomfortable emotions and recognize them and validate them, the easier it becomes to do it over and over again, and then process and heal all these little bits, Mm. layers of pain that you have. So, yes, that is perfect advice. I love that. When you were talking about that, pointing the finger at people and, and being so hurt by something someone else did, I can't help but always think whenever I do that. And as I'm pointing one finger to someone, you have three fingers pointing back at you. Mm-hmm. And I think that is a powerful reminder. Every time we're pointing at someone of you did this to me, we need to take a look at ourselves three times as much mm-hmm. of what we're responsible for and what we're doing with that information, because mm-hmm. taking offense to something is already a problem. So we have to look deeper in ourselves and find out why are we being so hurt by this person that we're pointing yeah. a finger at? It's totally a choice. And we yeah. can choose something different. I love that. That's so you great. Can. Even if, you know, you have to sit in it for a minute and be upset or frustrated by it. Yeah. Like, that's okay. Like every emotion we have is valid. Every emotion. They are, and they all come from a higher power. They're all valid. They all serve a purpose, right. all of them. And so, but it's being able then to turn that. And what do you do with it? Yes. So it's just life is so much better now. And, you know, I never would go back. You'll get the random person that asks you the question, you know, do you wish you were still married and living with him? Do you wish that blah, blah, blah? I don't because I wouldn't have been given all of these beautiful challenges as freaking hard as they've been to overcome I wouldn't have met, wouldn't have met all the amazing people along the way that are part of my life now and have the opportunities that I have. I mean, every experience that we have in this life, whether you believe it or not right now is for a reason and for our benefit and an opportunity for us. I am just so extremely grateful to be where I am today in this place. That's wonderful. Wonderful advice to share. I love that. And just looking at what everything can bring to our life, looking at it as a gift. 
what can it bring into my life and being grateful for even the hard times. That's a great inspiring way to be. So thank you for that. You're welcome. The things that I've said already that I feel were, are the best lessons for me. And the first one is that expectations, it's not your job to place expectations on anyone. And people will say, well, not even your kids. No. And you can use a different word. You can say requirements or something else, but in the traditional sense of an expectation, no, because expectations still, even with your kids are premeditated resentments. So if your child doesn't follow through, doesn't, you know, get the grades that you're expecting them to have or fall short of what you're asking them to do, which there will be a time when they will do that because they're human and they're learning and they're not exactly like you, you will be resentful and disappointed. They will feel shame and feel like they're less than, which isn't okay either. Expectations are premeditated resentments. Don't, don't do it. Um, Writing. I cannot express how important writing is. Writing. Writing relieves pain and reveals truth you've got all this pain shoved down in your heart with a tight lid on and a heart wall built around it and then what happens when you write it's like a prayer when you write it whether you some people be like oh it's a prayer it's it's poetry it's your life story i call it a prayer it comes once you start writing and you you don't have to have anything specific to write about you just like start writing and it doesn't matter what you say when you write. Doesn't matter if it's got some swear words in it, like it's an emotion. So whatever comes out, comes out, but it comes out of your heart and it flows down your arm through that pen and onto the paper. And then you leave it there. You can sit and read it and process it, but it's so true. And so I challenge people to give that a, a test, test it or relieves pain and reveals truth. Yeah, those are two things that were my, that are always my favorites. And then of course, to, to let go and let God, you know, which may to some people sound very cliche, but for someone like me who was raised in a very, very cultural Christian upbringing, when all of this happened to me, my faith really faltered. And I had to take my faith down to the foundation, my relationship with God and with Jesus Christ. And I had to rebuild it back up brick by brick. And it has taken a while. And there are certain places where it's not all put back together, but my relationships with them now are so much healthier and so much better than they were when I was being raised. I have a different outlook and it's so important to remember that we're not in control. <laughs> you can only control yourself. So there's one right there. You can, you, you can only control this right here. Okay. Let go, let God. And for the love, stay in your own lane, not your kid's lane, not your spouse's lane, not your parents or your siblings lane. They might try to come into yours. They, they might, a lot of them do it, but you stay in your own lane. No one needs your advice. No one needs you to help them or fix them. That is not healthy. So if you are doing that, that is codependent. 
and I will give you a book <laughs> to share with people. So it's called Codependent No More, and it's by Melody Beatty, and it is amazing and easy to read and easy to understand. Amazing to read over and over again. So we can do it. Yes. There's a lot of healing to do, but we can, we can do it. Like being healthy is so much better. Thank you. I love it. You're welcome. Thanks yeah. for this opportunity. It was so nice. Yeah. yeah. I appreciate it. I really appreciate you sharing so much truth and so much personal. Uh, I just really appreciate it. It's, it's been educational and I love, I think I've nodded the whole entire time and my head is like, oh, yeah. <laughs> so I'm just like, yeah, yeah, yes, yes. Speak, preach. Yes. And I relate. I relate so well with most of what you said was just like, yep, been there, done that. So I appreciate yeah. you sharing this. So thank you. You're welcome. Thanks. You're still here. Well, then click on the next episode to hear more of Heidi's Lemonade Stand. Also, don't forget to subscribe and leave us a five-star review. Thanks. <laughs>